Well, if you've been following um, this series we've been doing on, on basic doctrines that Phil has been do doing most of, and uh, Chris has done a bit as well, which is the first bit that I've done, um, but it won't have escaped your notice that we've been making extensive use of, of this book, or one rather like it, and it's a fair question to ask, why do we do that? I mean, why, we might have expected, for instance, that Phil would stand up here and um, present to us the latest theological research, the latest results of scholarship. But largely he doesn't do that, though it's always a good idea to be up to date with the scholarship. But that's not what he stands up here to do. We could perhaps um, repeat to you the words of some spiritual leader, say the Archbishop of Canterbury or the Pope or somebody like that. But we don't do that either. Well, we could do what the Quakers do, and we could um, sit quietly and wait for the inner light to appear in our hearts and perhaps try and hear the word of God directly in our hearts. Or we could do what some American churches do, some of the more extreme ones. We could sing exciting songs and we could have live snakes to uh, wind us up a bit and hope that through that excitement we could hear the words of God in that state of spiritual excitement. But we don't do all of these things, any of those things. Instead, what we do is refer to this book. And it's a fair enough question to ask, why do we do that? Why, what is this book, anyway? Um, on the slide there, I've got a rather nice Victorian Bible at home, and that's the title page from it. It doesn't show up wonderfully well on the slide, but it's, it's got all these rather fine colored illustrations. Um, what, is it, what does the title say? Well, that one says Holy Bible. Some of your Bibles may just say simply Bible on the front. Uh, what does that mean? Well, it means book, so that doesn't really tell you a great deal, does it? Um, it may say Holy Bible, as this one does. Um, well, that tells you, I suppose, it's some sort of religious book, but uh, not much more than that, really. What is this book? That's not really that helpful, is it, the title page? Sometimes it's referred to as the Scriptures, but even that just means the writing, so uh, you know, that doesn't tell you a lot either. What exactly is this book? Well, it's actually not a single book at all, in fact. It's a collection of 66 individual books, which somewhat confusingly we usually refer to as the books of the Bible, so the books of the book. So it's a somewhat confusing terminology, really, but that's what we, that's what we do. And of course, strictly speaking, what we have here is a translation of the Bible into English. This one's the 1974, I think it is, translation of the New International Version. There's a later version of the New International Version. Um, the one that you, I've got the title page there is a King James Version, and a, a much older translation. And of course, this book has been translated into... Uh, many languages. I did ask uh, Michael if he had his Italian one with him, but he hasn't got bought it today. But this one's German. It says Die Heilige Schrift, which I think means the holy writings, the holy scriptures. 
It's been translated into many languages. Um, and it consists, of course, of two sections, which we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. In fact, you probably can't read it, but this scroll bit here says, says containing the Old and New Testaments. So have a look at the contents page of your Bibles. It's usually about, it's about page three on the church Bibles. And as you can see there, it uh, talks about the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament. Uh, what are these? Well, I'm, I'm quoting here from the Lyon Electronic Library. It's the Hebrew Old Testament. The Old Testament is made up of 39 books of the Christian Bible. These books are the holy writings or scriptures of the Jewish people and their religion, Judaism. They were first written down in Hebrew and Aramaic, the ancient languages of the Jews. Many of these writings are so old that little is now known of their origins. The Jewish scribes used to make new copies of Hebrew sacred writings from time to time, but documents did not last long in the climate of the Bible lands, and so we rarely find very old copies of the writings. End of the quote from the Lyon Electronic Library. But why these 39 books particularly? Which books were regarded as we say the canonical books, those as represented true scripture? We know that they were those that were regarded as having priestly and prof prophetic authority. And in fact, there's a strong Jewish tradition that says it was the scribe Ezra who uh, finally sort of made the judgment and edited, as it were, the, the um, Jewish scriptures and arranged and collected the material. Not absolutely certain it was Ezra, but it was certainly from the priestly and scribely, scribe class of the uh, Jewish teachers. Just to confuse matters further, there's also a Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, because it was translated by 70 scholars. And the New Testament writers, when they quote the Old Testament, quite often quote from the Septuagint. Well, what about the New Testament? 27 books of the New Testament, by contrast, were written over a quite short period of time, probably less than a century. They describe the life and teaching of Jesus and the spread of the gospel, or the message about Jesus, after his death and resurrection. But just as there were many other old writings dating from the Old Testament period, there were um, many other writings that refer to Jesus one way or another. How do we know what are the books of the scripture? The key question that was asked is whether these books had apostolic authority. Um, not necessarily were written by the apostles, but were written with the approval and authority of the apostles. And in fact, it wasn't until the Council of Carthage in AD 397 that the final list was finally agreed, but this requirement that they had apostolic authority and were consistent with the apostolic teaching was an important one, and um, most of the books had actually been accepted as scripture much earlier than that. Now, there's one surprising thing about the New Testament, and that's that it's written in Greek. Now, why is it surprising? Because um, 
Jesus probably didn't speak Greek, certainly not in his everyday teaching and life. He would have spoken either in classical Hebrew or in Aramaic, a sort of uh, more popular language that the Jews used. Uh, if you think sort of Yiddish today, Aramaic's a similar sort of uh, slightly downgraded version of Hebrew. <laughs> And so when we read the words of Jesus in the New Testament, you need to bear in mind we're actually reading them already in translation from Aramaic into Greek. And that's why the exact wording sometimes differs from gospel to gospel. So we have a large collection of religious literature here in various forms. Some of its history some of its proverbs and sayings. There's poetry. There's prophecy in the sense of people speaking the words of God in a direct way. There are visions and symbolic sections we call apocalyptic, apocalyptic, which means revealed or uncovered. Sometimes a bit of a struggle to work out what they mean. There are letters. Some letters are on giving practical advice. Some letters are essentially theological treatises. There's at least one academic exposition meditating on the meaning of life, the book we call Ecclesiastes. There's a dramatized debate on suffering and the will of God that we call the book of Job. And you could probably find other sorts of uh, literature as well. These books are written by a variety of authors in a lot of different styles. Some cases a book has several authors. In some cases it's just one. In some cases it's clear who the author is. In some cases it's disputed. And in some cases we have no idea at all who the author was. The earliest books date from prehistory. I don't know whether you've ever thought of this before, but they couldn't be written down until the invention of writing. And the invention of writing was only about 5,000 years ago in um, Sumeria, where, of course, is where the earliest books of the Bible come from, that part of the world. They invented writing about 5,000 years ago. The newest books are about 1,900 years old. Now, as I've already said, the Bible has all sorts of different kinds and styles of writing. So just, I'd just like to give you an example of this. You can look them up if you want to. I'll read them out to you. Um, if you read the story of um, Solomon, you'll find that he was somewhat obsessed with, with women. Um, and in 1 Kings 10 and 11, we have some sober history, which recorded the details and also excessive assessing the ups and downs, the good and the bad of Solomon's relationship with women. And it's very balanced, neither demonizing Solomon nor whitewashing him. And it's the mark, I think, of a good historian or chronicler. Let me just read a short passage here. This is 1 Kings 11, verses 1 to 6. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. 
They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. What we have here is the cool, measured words of a historian, a chronicler. We're presented with the historical data, in this case the statistics, and um, where they came, where the wives came from. It's calm, it's balanced, and we get an almost dispassionate assessment of the impact of uh, Solomon's relationships with these women, don't we? What we have here is chronicle history. Now there's another book that takes a very different take on Solomon's relationship with women. It's called The Song of Solomon. It's written down, it's written about, and it's very possibly written by Solomon. I said before when I did a couple of sermons on this, I think the best, it's best to think of it as an opera. It deals in very graphic terms with the human experience of love. It talks about the ecstasy of love fulfilled and the despair of desire thwarted. It shows how love can skew calm judgment. Not in the way the historian says that. It says it in a very different way. It shows how the intensity of the relationship affects those around. It describes love as being stronger than death. And in this case, unlike that historical passage, it's clearly not meant as an actual, literal description of the events. One doesn't normally converse in poetry. Rather, it captures in language the intensity of the passion. So again, I'll just read you a short sample passage from this book. The speaker in this passage is the beloved, who's the, the Shunammite woman who's the female lead in this drama. So it's not Solomon himself speaking. Again, it's, uh, it's his uh, beloved. And uh, she speaks in these terms, Solomon chapter 2, 16 to 3, verse 5. My lover is mine, and I am his. He browses among the lilies until the day breaks and the shadows flee. Turn, my lover, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the rugged hills. All night long on my bed I looked for the one my heart loves. I looked for him but did not find him. I will get up now and go about the city through its streets and squares. I will search for the one my heart loves. So I looked for him but did not find him. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. Have you seen the one my heart loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one my heart loves. I held him and would not let him go till I'd brought him to my mother's house, to the room of the one who conceived me. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires hardly be more different in style and content, could it, than that uh, calm history that we read in 1 Kings. 
So, the Bible is a collection of writings. It's obviously of some historical and cultural importance. But surely, it's not more than that, is it? Why should people in the 21st century be concerned with these ancient texts? Surely it's just a text for the historians of the ancient world. Why should it be relevant to us some 1900 years later after the last book was written? And there are two reasons we can give for that and really for the rest of our talk today and next week I'm going to be looking at those two reasons. First of all, because it is a record, or it purports to be a record of God's dealing with mankind, and more specifically, more particular, God's determination to save mankind from himself and his own folly. And secondly, it makes the even more remarkable claim that behind the variety of human authorship, and of course there is a variety of human authorship, but behind that there is in fact one divine author. That this Bible, this book, with all its different styles and different um, ways of speaking, is ultimately the work of one author, that the Bible was written in fact by God himself. So those are two remarkable claims and we need to think about them and evaluate them. Well, certainly the Bible provides a historical record of the Jewish people and their God, together with an early history of Christianity. I can hardly argue about that. And on the level of human testimony, when it's writing history, when it's compared with other historical records, we find that it's, it's largely consistent. Of course, there are always disputes over dates and so on. Scholars spend lots of time arguing about the date of the escape of the Jews from Egypt, for instance, because it's a bit tricky to uh, tie it in with the dates of with the um, Egyptian records. But still, nothing that would cause a serious doubt as, to, uh, as a historical record. And indeed, how um, perhaps see how accurate the historical record is we can just look, think about 2 Kings, chapters 18 and 19. If you want to look in your Bible, you can look on page 390, but uh, I'm not actually going to read this passage out because it's a bit too long. But in this passage, we read of the invasion of Judah by the Assyrians. And this tells us that Judah's second city, Lachish, fell to the Assyrians, but that the um, capital city, Jerusalem, did not. Now, is that, does that match up with the historical records that we have? Well, you don't actually have to go to Assyria to find out. Um, one of the advantages of um, having at one time ruled an empire is that a lot of stuff was removed from where it should be and brought to Britain. And so you only need to go, in fact, as far as the British Museum in London, and you'll find that there's a a frieze which literally, graphically, it's carved pictures, <laughs> carved into stone, describes the siege and fall of the city of Lachish and the Assyrian invasion. And it really is quite graphic. You can, you can see all the ancient world's siege technology, how they used to build um, mounds to breach the walls and so on. 
and you can see how the city fell and how the uh, captives were carried away from the city. It's really quite a fascinating thing to go and look at. But that's where it stops. There's no freeze or other record describing the fall of Jerusalem because it didn't. And the Assyrian records are very quiet about that. But King 2 Kings tells us what actually happened. It says an angel of the Lord intervened, although if you read the description, it doesn't seem to be sort of the archangel Michael with a sword. It was probably some dead, dread disease, deadly disease or something. But it smote the Assyrian army. Um, it says, I think, 185,000, I think, of them died. I think that's the figure. You can look it up. And the army was forced to withdraw. The Assyrian records are silent over this defeat. They didn't like to talk about the defeats. And shortly later, Sennacherib, the king, was assassinated. And the city of Jerusalem didn't fall to the Assyrians. Um, it didn't fall, in fact, until the Babylonian invasion a century or so later, which is also described in detail in the um, books of the kings and chronicles, and which ties up again very accurately with the Babylonians' records. So the Bible, in human terms, wasn't written by people who were stupid or ignorant or interested in making up fairy tales. And so these claims that they made to have met with the living God and to be writing the very words of God really ought to be taken at least seriously considered. So let's see if the Bible does indeed make these claims for itself and see if we can evaluate them and examine some of the things that the scripture says about itself. Now actually the development of the understanding of scripture in the scripture is roughly chronological. So um, I'll uh, we'll go through and pick out some main points. Now, of course you'll realize this is absolutely <laughs> enormous subject and um, I can't explore every av avenue, in, av sorry, avenue in detail but we'll try and get an overview and in fact this morning we're just going to look at the Old Testament view of God's word and next week we'll try and see what the New Testament says about the importance of scripture which does give a somewhat different slant on it actually but uh, we'll look first of all this week at what the Old Testament says about it. So I'd like to look at it in f under four headings. First of all, God speaks and man speaks. Secondly, look at briefly at the law of Moses. Um, I'll look a little bit about law, wisdom, and meditation, how we're supposed to read the scripture, although Phil is going to say a lot more about this in a couple of weeks, so I won't say too much about that. And look at the prophetic message, what the prophets thought they were doing, or said they were doing. So I'd like to look at those four things. So you might like to turn in your Bible to Genesis, um, at the beginning of the Bible, the first few chapters of the Bible, I think it's page three in the church Bibles. <coughs> Genesis 1 verse 3 says the following, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And I'd like to focus on the word said there. God spoke. Um, move on to verse 22. 
It's talking about the um, winged creatures and the water creatures. In verse 22, it says, God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase in the earth. And again, look at the speech words there. God blessed them and he spoke, he said. Move on to verse 26 where we find something slightly different. Verse 26 it says, God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Interesting there, you notice it's plural. God said, let us make man. Now, we won't go into here who he was talking to, but obviously there is communication of some sort there. It says, let us, he's talking to somebody. And we notice that God blessed the animals, but if we move forward to verse 28, when it talks about the creation of man, it says, God blessed them and said to them, different, he didn't speak directly to the animals, but he did speak directly to man. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Uh, I'll look forward to chapter 2, verse 19, which says the following. The Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. Or in chapter 2, verse 23, um, Adam discovers woman. He says, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, if you're being sceptical, you might want to debate how literally you're meant to take the details of this story, but certainly it tells us that speech starts with God. And what is completely undeniable is that humans can speak. All humans, unless they're very badly damaged in some way, can speak. We are all one species. It's a remarkable thing in itself that the, um, the Inuit of northern Canada can interbreed with the Maori from New Zealand, even though they may have been separated from thousands of years. But so we're all one species, but all, more to the point is we all have language. We all speak. And that's fundamentally different from animal communication. couldn't find the source of this quote, but it makes it uh, very clear. Bees can only talk about honey. Humans can talk about anything. Language gives us an entirely different perception of the world than is possible without it. And the Bible claims, indeed, that that language is part of the image of God and that it enables communication between humans, but also between God and man. 
And as we've already seen, language can change our view of the world. We can illuminate the mind with calm, objective history. We can inflame the passions and emotions with poetry. We can name the animals as, as Adam did. We can study and analyze and classify the world around us in ways that the animals themselves can't. Their perception of the world is immediate. Ours, sorry to use long words, but are the only words I could think of to say ours is abstracted and it's constructed. We construct the world around us, our view of the world around us, by language. You can use language to talk a potential suicide down off Beachy Head. That would certainly change their life in a radical way. You can use language to prepare a nation for war. The threat of Nazi invasion in this country is long past, yet you can still hear those, if you hear those words of Churchill, you still get a tingle down your spine, don't you? We will defend our island. We will fight them on the beaches. So on. We will never surrender. Can't do Churchill's accent. Phil would do it much better than me, but the way he says it is so portentous. We will never surrender. That's the use of language to prepare a nation from the, for the threat of invasion and war. Feel perhaps that our current Western leaders have forgotten this sort of rhetoric. But unfortunately, our jihadist enemies haven't. And then finally, man's own ingenuity found ways of freezing and preserving language. As I've just pointed out, language, writing, language, writing down wasn't invented till about 5,000 years ago. It's an aspect of human technology, writing. And from 5,000 years ago up to the internet, we've had this perception that words capture knowledge. If we preserve the words, and we preserve that knowledge. And if you propagate the words, you disseminate knowledge. And that's the same thought that those ancient Sumerians had who thought, we'll write down the records of the king, we'll find a way to preserve them for the future. And of course, it's the same thought we have today when we go on Google or Wikipedia and try and find words that people have written about a particular subject. The words both preserve the knowledge and enable us to spread it. And before we leave Genesis, let me just note one more thing. Genesis 3, verses 9 to 10. And this was after Adam and Eve had sinned, of course, had eaten the fruit of the tree and disobeyed God. The Lord God called to the man, Who are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. I won't read any more of it, but of course what goes on is the conversation between God and Eve. Which... Uh, which um, describes really God's plan for the future. God wants to talk to man, even if man doesn't always want to answer. And will you 
treat God's call like one of those annoying phone calls you get about PPI. Sometimes on the landline we don't get anything else except junk calls nowadays. And you're always in two minds whether even to bother to answer it or not. You do, of course, because it might be something important, but most of the time it isn't. But will we treat God's... Is that what it is? Is that better? Try that. Oh, yes, sounds a bit better, doesn't it? Good. No, still making a noise. Okay. You want me to take this off then? Yeah, is that? Okay, we'll use the other mic. Yeah, so will you listen to the voice of God or will you treat it like one of those annoying phone calls is the question that we have to answer. Well, let's move on to the law of Moses. I'm just going to read two passages from this. First five books of the Bible are called the books of Moses, not that he wrote all of them. He can't have done because they describe his death, but they're referred to as the books of Moses. And um, they talk about Moses bringing the law of God to uh, the people, to his people, the people of God. So, first of all, Leviticus 18, 1 to 5. It's on page 120 if you want to look it up, but I'll read it out to you. starts with God speaking and then Moses speaking. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You must not do as they do in Egypt where you used to live and you must not do as they do in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. Do not follow their practices. You must obey my laws and be careful to follow my decrees. I am the Lord your God. Keep my decrees and laws For the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. And then after Moses has finished teaching them all the laws, he, um, this is his own words now, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 to 9, he says the following. (coughs) See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them, the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever, whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. So what is it that God wants to talk about? Well, he wants to tell his people how to live He says he's given them wise guidance in the laws that Moses wrote down. And although it was Moses who wrote them down, um, and it was Moses who spoke them, and yet we're told they're a message from God himself. 
And you'll notice also the law of Moses isn't just some dry and dusty legal code that gets uh, shoved up on a shelf somewhere and only referred to when you absolutely have to. Um, the aim is to give the people understanding and wisdom and indeed life. And indeed to have the law there as a sign that God is near and that he will respond when they pray to him. So that leads us, doesn't it, to the question, how are we supposed to obtain this understanding? And as I said, Phil is going to talk about how to read the Bible the week after next, so we can be brief on this, but the teaching on how to respond to the words of God give us, does give us a clue as to the nature of that, what the word of God is. And so it's... Uh, worth having a brief look at it now uh, Psalm 119 which Michael wrote part of, wrote, read part of is a meditation on the use of God's law uh, let me look read to you here just a, a few different verses from the psalm this is verses 9 to 16 it, it's um, headed Beth the, the, the psalm is actually an acrostic poem each section starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet and this is the second section, Beth. How can a young man keep his way pure by living according to your word? I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Look at the uh, verbs he uses here to describe his relationship to the word. I will live according to your word. I will seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart. Praise to you, O Lord, teach me your decrees. I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. In other words, I sit down and think about it. I delight in your decrees. And finally, he sums up saying, I will not neglect your word. I'm going to keep doing all these things. We had a slightly different slant in Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs is part of the wisdom literature or the wisdom writings and it gives a slightly different slant. It's a slightly different um, form of literature to the law but the basic principle of how we understand it is the same. And uh, the, this is just the introductory section to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning. 
and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Note that we're supposed to think about it to obtain wisdom. We're not supposed to read it parrot fashion, just quote odd verses of people. We are supposed to think about it, study it, have our minds changed by it and gain wisdom. And some of it might be hard to understand. Um, Verse 6, it talks about the riddles, which is, I gather, quite a good translation of the Hebrew, dark sayings, sayings that you have to think about to try and understand what they actually mean. Um, So we can think of the law which lays down long-term principles. And the wisdom and the poetry books provide hooks on which we can stimulate our minds and our emotions to increased understanding. But there is also in the Old Testament there is prophecy. And the job of the prophet is to speak the word of the Lord directly into the current situation. Now there are a lot of prophets in the Old Testament and uh, we can't talk about all of them. So I thought I'd just uh, pick one. Let's uh, pick Amos. You'll find the book of Amos, I think it's page 916 in the church Bibles towards the end of the Old Testament. So Amos chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Just in terms of the geography, I should say that Tekoa is actually in Judah in the southern kingdom but uh, Amos takes a trip north. The words of Amos, one of the shepherds of Tekoa, what he saw concerning Israel two years before the earthquake, when Isaiah was king of Judah, and Jeroboam son of Jehoash was king of Israel. He said, that's Amos said, he said, the Lord roars from Zion and thunders from Jerusalem, The pastures of the shepherds dry up and the top of Carmel withers. This is what the Lord says, for three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not turn back my wrath because she threshed Gilead with sledges having iron teeth. A lot more in the same vein. This is not very politically correct because of course Amos is from Judah um, and talks about Zion, Jerusalem, which is in Judah and where the Lord is supposed to speak from. And Damascus, of course, is the uh, capital of the northern kingdom. <laughs> um, well, well, it's in the northern kingdom anyway, the important city of the northern kingdom, Israel. So it's not very politically correct, but Amos says two things. First of all, he says, these are my words. These are the words of Amos, son of one of the shepherds of Tekoa. But he also says, this is what the Lord says that are only his words, they're the words of the Lord himself. Amos actually was challenged about this who, uh, by the, um, the Israelites, the northern kingdom, weren't too keen about him uh, coming up from Judah and stirring things up. And so he responds, uh, in, turn towards the end of the book, Amos chapter 7, I'll read you verses 12 to 16. 
Amaziah was a, a priest, a priest of the northern kingdom though, not a priest in Jerusalem. Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do not do your prophesying there. In other words, he was suggesting that he was actually only in it for the money. Um, don't prophesy anymore at Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. It means, of course, the northern kingdom, not, not Jerusalem. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor a prophet's son, but I was a shepherd. I also took care of sycamore fig trees. In other words, it's not, I'm not a professional prophet. I'm not doing it for the money. I had a perfectly good income before that. I was a farmer. But, he says, the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Notice he says, the northern kingdom. And then, now then, hear the word of the Lord. So Amos wasn't in it for the money. He didn't need to be a professional prophet to earn his living. He could have stayed in Judah, except the Lord had told him to go to Israel, to the northern kingdom. And he was doing it because he realised that what he was speaking were the very words of the Lord. And then he comes up and says at the end, now then, hear the words of the Lord. It's not me you've got to listen to. I mean, I'm just some Judean shepherd. You could ignore me if you want. But these are the words of the Lord. So we've looked at this. We've seen that God speaks and man speaks. We've seen that the law of Moses is regarded as the very uh, words of God himself. We've seen how we're supposed to receive the words by meditating on them and studying them and achieving wisdom through them and we've seen that the prophets also claimed that their words were the very words of God himself this is the passage actually that's uh, part of the passage that Chris quoted in uh, our prayer meeting this morning he didn't know I was also going to finish with it um, the last book in the Bible uh, in the Old Testament sorry is Malachi Now Malachi actually isn't isn't even a proper name it just means my messenger it might have been his name but it might have just been a term to refer to him well how would you finish all this book of wisdom well it actually finishes with a curse just read the last couple of verses verses 5 and 6 the last two verses of the Old Testament it says see I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or perhaps not or else I will come and strike the land with a curse it's not a matter of take it or leave it we have to judge for ourselves whether these are the very words of God and therefore we can't afford not to listen to them 
or whether it's all just made up stuff. But the Bible says that God is on the line to you to say, will you pick up or will you just assume it's a junk call and ignore it? Is the Bible's claim to be God's word to mankind credible? Well, if we read it, we find out that it is. I think it was J.B. Phillips, one of the Bible scholars, who said the Bible really, in the end, authenticates itself. When you read it, when we read it, it speaks to us as being the word of God. And the Bible doesn't tell us everything that we might need to know about anything. It does tell us a little bit about farming and a little bit about politics and a little bit about economics and medicine and arts and crafts. It doesn't tell you very much about those. Fairly certain that it tells, says absolutely nothing at all about nuclear physics or computer programming. And yet, these are things, we, these are useful things to study, things we ought to know about. But the Bible tells us about the most important things. It tell, most important thing. It tells us about the nature of mankind and the state of mankind and what God is doing about that. And Malachi promised, didn't he, a prophet who would turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Though interestingly, when Jesus came, <laughs> he said, a man's enemies might be those of his own household. But um, the prophet came and the Bible points, in fact, to Jesus Christ. And we'll uh, see that as we look at what the New Testament says about the scripture next week. But we couldn't finish except with that promise of a prophet who would indeed turn the hearts of the people back to God. And that Jesus Christ is the prophet and our priest and our king. It's the prophet who declares, he's the prophet who declares the words of God to us. He's the priest who makes peace with, with God for us so the law doesn't condemn us. And he's the king who is the lawgiver himself, the very source of the words. So we ignore the scriptures at our peril and that's why Phil and Chris have been taking their doctrine from the scriptures because it claims to be the very words of God to us.